Before we open God's Word, I have a couple of personal words. Hi and bye. The hi is from my colleagues at Calvin Theological Seminary. I've been here four weeks and I've never told you how much they appreciate your support, whether that's prayer or financial. We're in the business of training people to serve God and His church, and I personally am privileged to be able to do that with young students and older ministers online, and it is a joy to be able to be in one of uh, our supportive churches, and uh, on behalf of the president of the seminary and my faculty colleagues, the students and the staff, I uh, want to say hi, and thank you so very much. The bye is from me. It's uh, been a quick four weeks. It's passed very rapidly for me. For those of you who, well, maybe didn't find it go so fast and are glad it's over, um, it has been enjoyable for me. You've been very supportive and friendly. You've said some nice things after the sermons, and I appreciate the encouragement. Uh, God bless you as you go on with your regular pastor. What a fine guy he is. I knew him a long time ago, and uh, you are blessed to have a man and his family like that. Our uh, scripture lesson this morning for our last promise for the bleak midwinter is Acts chapter 27. Acts 27 is a long reading, and I'm not going to read it all at once. This will require that you keep a Bible handy. Uh, there is also a map of the journey that's outlined in this scripture uh, in the center of your bulletin, so you have to keep that at hand as well. And there will be some screens up here in case you want to take notes. There's a very, very skeletal outline. So you're going to be really busy this morning, uh, keeping track of the Bible and the map and the notes. And so I, I hope you won't have any time to fall asleep. Let me get into all of this by asking how many of you have ever been caught in a ferocious winter storm? I, I don't mean in your house. You know, where the furnace is going and the fire is blazing and you're wrapped up in your fleecy blanket. I'm talking about when you're out in the elements and it's dangerous. The temperature's plummeting and the wind is howling and the drifts are piling up. I'm talking about that kind of experience. Have you been caught in a real ferocious winter storm? I can still remember the one I was caught in back in college. My new wife and my brother and I were driving from here back to my home in Denver. And uh, going along Interstate 80, we ignored all of the traffic and weather warnings, of course, being 21 years old and knowing everything. And so we drove into the teeth of a blizzard that was so ferocious that it absolutely whited out the windshield. You've been in those conditions where you cannot see one thing in front of you. You can try your wipers, you can try a defroster, but there's so much snow you can't see a thing. So my brother and I had the bright idea of turning off the lights of the car because that's what was causing the whiteout, you know, and left the running lights on so people could see us and then I hung my head out the driver's window and he hung his out the passenger window so that we could keep our eyes on that thin ribbon of black pavement that would lead us to our destination. You wonder where my wife was? She said, I'm going to sleep in the back because if I'm going to die, I want to be asleep when it happens. 
I asked her last night if she remembered. She said, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, we, we drove for a long time with our heads hanging out the windows watching that black ribbon of pavement um, until we got to Omaha, Nebraska. And I got out of the car at a gas station and fell flat on my back because that black ribbon of pavement was black ice. The next thing we did was find a hotel, as you would too. Well, Acts 27 is about a ferocious winter storm, not on the highway, but on the high seas. I can't think of a more realistic and helpful picture of our voyage through our own winter storms than this one in Acts 27. And the best thing about it is, at the middle of it, there is another promise for the bleak midwinter. Follow along as I read verses 1 through 12. <clears throat> when it was decided that we would sail for Italy, Paul and some other prisoners were handed over to a centurion named Julius, who belonged to the Imperial Regiment. We boarded this ship from Adramatium, about to sail for ports along the coast of the province of Asia, and we put out to sea. Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, was with us. The next day we landed at Sidon, and Julius, in kindness to Paul, allowed him to go to his friends so they might provide for his needs, supplies for the journey. From there we put out to sea again and passed to the Lee of Cyprus. That's on the west and north of Cyprus on your map whereas they would have gone to the south of that, except, as it says in verse 4, the winds were against us, coming from the west where they wanted to go, so they went around the lee of Cyprus. When we had sailed across the open sea off the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we landed in Myra in Lycia. There the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy and put us on board. We made slow headway for many days and had difficulty arriving off Canidus. When the wind did not allow us to hold our course west, we sailed to the Lee of Crete to the south opposite Salmone. We moved along the coast with difficulty and came to a place called Fair Havens near the town of Lassia. Much time had been lost and sailing had already become dangerous because by now it was after the fast, after September 15. So Paul warned them, men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to ship and cargo and to our own lives also. But the centurion, instead of listening to what Paul said, followed the advice of the pilot and of the owner of the ship. Since the harbor was unsuitable to winter in, the majority decided that we should sail on, hoping to reach Phoenix and winter there. This was a harbor in Crete facing both southwest and north west. You can put your Bibles down now. Let me tell you what, what lies behind this, what had happened up to this point, is that Paul was in Jerusalem coming back from his third missionary journey. He was preaching. He had some Gentile believers with him, and that combination of preaching and Gentile believers got him in trouble. He got arrested, and as soon as he did, he said, I appeal to Caesar, every Roman citizen's right was to go and find real justice with Caesar. So they put him on a ship headed for Italy, a long ways away across the Mediterranean Sea. Now the ship that he was on then was not a great freighter. It was a little 
puddle hopper or coast hopper, and the wind was coming from the west, so they had to tack back and forth to make any headway at all. They couldn't go straight to the west. They had to go north, and then they'd go this way and this way because, as you heard in the scripture, the wind was against them. Now, you may have experienced something like that in life where it seems as though the wind of God is against you. There's nothing really terrible going on. There's no great storm raging, but it seems as though everything is going the wrong way. It seems as though God is not blowing into your sails, but blowing against you, and so you don't make very much progress. Well, that's what happened to them. And so they tacked back and forth, wasting, wasting time. They started out kind of late in the season. It was fall already, it was past the fast, as I said, September 15. It said in the Mediterranean that if you sail after September 15, your trip is doubtful. If you sail after November 11, you are suicidal. The first part of their journey occurred somewhere in between, perhaps in mid-October. So they went up the coast, turned toward Turkey, went to the southeast corner of Turkey, and there a centurion found a larger ship, a great freighter that had come up from Alexandria in Egypt full of wheat to bring it to Italy put Paul and his other prisoners on that great freighter. And Paul said to the captain, it's not going to work. It's too late in the season. We're going to lose cargo. We're going to lose people. But the owner of the ship, eager to get to Rome and get his profit, not wanting to feed the crew somewhere along the way all winter long, said, no, we're, we're going. We're going to leave because this is a big ship. And it was. I did some research and discovered that that ship was 180 feet long, 45 feet wide, and 43 feet high. Think uh, half a football field, long and wide, and then a four-story building. So they were feeling comfortable, the captain and his crew, and so they took off. And they battled the wind and got tired of that, and so they decided to sail south to the large island of Crete where they'd get some, hopefully, relief from the wind. And, and so we find them creeping along the coast of Crete, looking for some sort of safe harbor because they'd finally concluded that they weren't going to make it all the way to Italy that winter. They had to find a place to winter there on Crete. And then says the story, a wind, a hurricane force wind came blasting off the island. And that's when the crew discovered what many of us already know. It's one thing to have the wind of God against you so that life is hard. It's quite another to have the wind of God blasting behind you filling your sails, blowing you off the course you wanted to pursue. 
Before this, they were able to get to where they wanted to go by steering carefully, but now, with the wind of God blasting behind them, they had to give way and go wherever God wanted to blow them. In a real sense, they, they surrendered to the will of God. It was a storm that in our New England they would call a nor'easter. It had hurricane force as a story, which puts it at what, 70, 80, 90 miles an hour? A 180-foot ship driven by 80-mile-an-hour winds. Before they knew it, they were far out into the open Mediterranean with waves slashing and bashing their ship wherever they went. Immediately, the whole expedition was in peril. Now to your Bibles again, verse 13. When a gentle south wind began to blow, this is before now, they thought they'd obtained what they wanted, so they weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. Before very long, a wind of hurricane force called the Northeaster swept down from the island. The ship was caught in the storm and could not head into the wind, so we gave way to it and were driven along. As we passed to the lee of a small island called Cauda, we were hardly able to make the lifeboat secure. When the men had hoisted it aboard, they passed ropes under the ship itself to hold it together. Fearing that they would run aground on the sandbars of Sirtis, which was way off on the coast of Africa, they lowered the sea anchor and let the ship be driven along. We took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. After the men had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, Men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would have spared yourselves this damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep up your courage, because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night an angel of God, of the God whose I am and whom I serve, stood beside me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar. And God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. Again, you can put your Bibles down. As I read that, I was struck by the parallels between what the sailors did to keep their little ship afloat, or their large ship afloat, and what we do to stay afloat during the winter storms of our lives. First thing I noticed was that the sailors, when they sensed, that's how the Bible puts it, when they sensed that winter was coming, I don't know how they sensed it, they, well, they had sailed a long time, they knew that the air was changing, they knew that the storms were coming, so they began to look for safe harbor, a place that they could winter 
be out of the storms and, and live for another spring. That struck me that that's what we do when we sense that there's a storm coming in life, when we know that there's winter out there somewhere. We try to find safe harbor. Maybe if we get a secure job, if we take care of our health, if we tend our relationships, if we save a lot of money, pay off the house, get not only life insurance but long-term care insurance, maybe we'll be able to weather the storms when they come. But these sailors discovered what some of us already know, there is no stopping the storm. So when it hit, they gave way to the wind. They stopped fighting it, stopped trying to tack, as I said, and they gave in to the will of God and let that wind blow them wherever. But as they did, they took a whole lot of measures to try to keep their ship afloat. First, they decided that they would not try to save their own lives with a lifeboat that was trailing on behind their freighter. They could have thought of doing that. In fact, later on in the story, you'll see that some of the sailors did get that idea. Maybe if we use our own man-made devices, we can save ourselves. But they decided not to do that. They hauled it on board, lashed it to the deck so that it couldn't smash into the freighter from behind when a wave would pick it up and smash it in and wreck their boat. Sometimes man-made life-saving devices will do that. And then they tried to make their, safe, their, their ship stronger by, by passing ropes under the ship and then winching them, tying them together. Can you imagine how they would do that? In a storm, 80 mile an hour winds? Well, I couldn't either and I looked it up. So what they did was they would get sailors at the front of the boat on both sides with ropes. They would throw the ropes under the ship and then walk to the back. And then when they got to the back, tie up the ropes. And then they'd go to the front and they'd throw more ropes and they'd slide it back under the boat until they had the boat lashed up with a whole bunch of ropes. They called it cocooning. They wrapped the boat in a cocoon of ropes so that it would be tighter and better able to withstand the storm. And it seems to me that that's exactly what we do when a storm hits. We cocoon. We pull our family a little closer. We reach out to our church a little more and pull it closer. We reach out to friends. We want them to be biased. We might... Uh, in some way take care of our resources more carefully, develop a storm weather budget. We try to tighten up our little ship to make it more seaworthy. And then says a the story, they did something that most of us non-sailors won't understand. They dropped their sea anchor. Anybody know what that is? It's a parachute-like device, shaped like a cone. They dropped it behind the ship 
so that it would sort of be a drag in the water, sort of stabilize the back, slow down their speed so that they weren't racing toward the sandbars of Sirtis in Africa. They could maybe have something else happen before they wrecked on those sandbars. So they, they dropped their sea anchor in much the same way that we, when a storm hits, drop our anchors deeper into God. We drop our strong values and our solid faith deeper into God so that we'll not be blown away by the storm. I have a friend who has just been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. If you know anything about that, that's pretty much a death sentence. And uh, he's not thinking that way. But his wife told me the other day that when this kind of thing happens, you tend to stop paying attention to all the other things in life. Getting well, getting through it becomes the most important thing. And all the other things she said that seemed so important until two weeks ago, well, they just don't matter that much anymore. And that's exactly what happened to the crew. Did you notice that after they dropped the sea anchor, they started to throw cargo overboard? The whole reason they were on the journey was to get that cargo to Italy and now when death was staring them in the face, they started to strip down. They started to lighten up their lives. They started to get rid of the stuff that seemed so important. That's what we do. We strip down. We get down to the basics of life when the storm hits. That's what they did, and that's what we do. And then they did a foolish thing. Did you notice that, that after they threw the cargo overboard, Three days later, they threw all the tackle overboard, all the ropes, all the rigging, all the sails, maybe even the masts, the very things they needed to be able to navigate in a storm in their panic, they threw overboard, thinking that would somehow make them more buoyant and able to sort of ride the storm out. They got rid of the very things they needed to get through the storm. I have another friend who, who just had very serious, complicated experimental surgery in Chicago. It went pretty well, but it has really gotten him down. He's at the bottom of a black pit of depression, and he has done what these sailors did. He's thrown away the very things he needs to survive. He won't go to church. He cannot pray. His Bible stays closed. His faith is at least dormant, if not dead. He has lost all hope. That's exactly what our story says happened to these sailors. Verse 20, at last they lost all hope. And that's exactly when God spoke to them in their storm through the mouth of the Apostle Paul. Now, Paul had talked to the crew earlier. He'd said, don't go. I'm telling you, it's too late. You're all going to lose 
property, you might lose your life, and they ignored him because it was just Paul. Now it was God speaking. And Paul says to them, not one of you will be lost, only the ship will be destroyed. Last night an angel of the Lord came to me, and he said, don't be afraid, Paul. You're going to stand before Caesar, and God has graciously given to you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Only we will fall, run aground on some island somewhere. Well, that is God's promise to us in the bleak midwinter storms of our lives, not one of you will be lost because of Jesus. This story reminded me of another story of another storm in another sea, which teaches us something about where Jesus is in the storm. That story is found in Mark chapter 4. Out in the Sea of Galilee, Jesus' disciples are sailing as they often did, being fishermen as they were, when a sudden squall came up. There's a, a notch in the mountains to the west of the Sea of Galilee that functions as a wind funnel, and it can blow up 10-foot waves just like that, and that's what happened, and his disciples were utterly terrified. They could not understand how they could get caught in a storm when Jesus was in the boat, and he was. He was sleeping in the stern. And they couldn't understand why he didn't wake up and save them. We have the same questions. If Jesus loves me, why did he let this storm hit my life? If Jesus is with me, why doesn't he do something to stop this thing that's ruining my life? We don't know the answer to those questions. But that story in Mark 4 tells us something very, very reassuring about our midwinter storms. You might remember the story. The disciples finally wake Jesus up. They try themselves. They can't do it. They say, Lord, don't you care that we're going to drown? Well, of course he did. I mean, what could he do? Help them row? Tend the sails? bail out the boat, help them swim to shore? Well, that and much more, very much more. If you remember the story, Jesus stood up in the boat and he spoke to that howling wind and those raging waves as though he were speaking to a barking dog. He said, quiet! And as though he were speaking to a whining child, he said, be still. And instantly, the wind stopped, the sea was calm, and he turned to his disciples and said, why were you so afraid? And you can imagine the disciples saying, well, duh. I mean, here we are in a storm, and our fear has made us forget who you are. 
story says they were terrified, not by the storm now, but by what had just happened. And they said, who is this? Well, this, this is the master of the storm. This is the master of the universe who created the elemental forces of the universe with a word and controls them now in the same way. We don't know why the storms of winter batter our lives, but we do know that the master of the storm is able to get us to safe harbor. In Luke, no, John chapter 17, verse 12, Jesus prays something very like what the angels said to Paul. They've had the Last Supper. Jesus is heading out to be crucified, and he has one last prayer. And he says to his father, while I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by the name you gave me. None has been lost. On a much grander scale than, than the promise God gave Paul in Acts 27, God has graciously given to Jesus all who sail with Jesus. Not one of you will be lost. Back to the story. I'm not going to read this, but I invite you to follow along because I'm just going to retell the story. On the 14th night of the storm, imagine that now, two weeks, out in the open sea, 80 mile an hour wind, you can imagine 30 foot high billows crashing against them day in and day out. On the 14th night of the storm, the sailors thought they sensed that land was coming. A sailor's sense or a sailor's hearing. Maybe they heard breakers far off in the distance. They weren't sure, so they put down their sounding line, a rope with a big weight on the end of it, and discovered they were 120 feet to the bottom. A little later, they put down another sounding. They were 90 feet. Sure enough, things were getting shallower. They were getting closer to land. This was when the sailors decided they would save themselves. They took the lifeboat. They began to drop it down. They were afraid the big freighter would crash into the rocks against which they heard the waves crashing in the distance. They were going to take the lifeboat and scoot between them. Paul saw them doing it, and he said to the captain and the soldiers, if they leave, you're going to die. There won't be any sailors to do what needs to be done. So the sailors and the soldiers took out their swords, slashed the ropes, the lifeboat fell, and now the ship is bobbing in the waves until dawn. The story says when dawn finally came, they saw land. They didn't know where it was. Your map will tell you that it was the island of Malta, just south of Cilicia or Sicily, where, thank goodness, pizza was invented. They didn't know that. All they knew is there was a cove there, safe harbor, with a sandy beach. And they intended to ram that ship through the rocks, through the harbor, and beach it, and they would all jump out safe. 
at last. However, just when they thought they were saved, disaster struck. They had cut the anchor ropes. They don't want to be held back now. They want to go as fast as they can. They've untied the rowing, uh, the, the, the steering oars along the side, and they put at the foresail, the big sail in the front, because they want to race through as fast as they can. And so they are careening through the surf, through the rocks, and they make it through the rocks, but they hit a sandbar. And they are stuck fast. And the waves are pounding into the back of the freighter pounding and one board begins to loosen and pounding and another board begins to loosen and before they know it the whole back of the ship has fallen apart and then the entire vessel is wreckage a disaster but these are people who have been given a promise from God for the bleak midwinter not one of you will be lost so some of them, those who could, swim, who could swim strongly, jumped off the boat and swam into shore, and the others grabbed whatever wreckage they could find, pieces of the ship. And so, says the story, everyone made it to the shore in safety. That is our promise for the bleak midwinter. Those who stay with Christ, now hear this, those who do not abandon ship will be saved. I put it that way because that's the big temptation when we're in a big storm. When the sea is calm and the sun is shining, it's easy to trust in Jesus. When the wind comes against us and life gets difficult, we can hang on. But when a perfect storm hits us, it's hard to keep trusting the master of the storm. We're tempted to abandon him because it seems that he's abandoned us. And that's the very time we need to trust that Jesus can stop the storm and get us to harbor. That's our promise for today. You will reach the promised land. You might, you might sail into the harbor under full sail with your ship intact and all the possessions you've accumulated in hand. That would be wonderful. Or you might stagger ashore, gasping for breath, your ship destroyed and all of your possessions scattered to the sea. But Jesus will finally calm the storm with a word and bring you to the safe harbor of the Father's arms. That's our promise. Even when you're battered by the storm, even when it seems as though there is no hope, if you stay in the ship captained by Christ and cling to that cross-shaped piece of wreckage, 
not one of you will be lost. Let us pray. Dear Jesus, we're grateful that you have all the power to still the storm and all the love to be with us in the boat. It's hard to believe that when life is very difficult as it is for some of us here today. Together we pray for those who are struggling, who think that there's no hope. We pray that this story and its deep promise will help them to keep believing to keep clinging to you, to keep clinging to the cross. For the rest of us, Lord, strengthen our faith that whenever the storm comes, we might know that Jesus is with us and in a moment he can say, be still, and it will be, and until it is, we have the promise of salvation. In his name we pray, amen. Stand and sing. My hope is built. 